0: Uh, so we're just waiting on Ollie again. I double checked that he has the. Um,
1: and so we'll see. Second time's the charm, hopefully. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, anyways, 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 anyway. What was I thinking about today? There's something that. What do you think about all this stuff with McCain?
1: I think it's messy and I think we'll get into that a little bit later when we get towards the end of the podcast, but, um, I think there's, uh, it's an interesting talking point. I think he's the last of a dying breed in many ways. And I think, uh, people wasted no time kind of going after him politically or trying to use him politically trying to use him as either an advantage or
0: a negative talking point. Honestly, I just feel like we're in this age now where that's just what people do with anything. It doesn't matter what. It might be what one of the Kardashians posted last week. I see Ali's name on here. I wonder if he's on the call now.
2: Yeah, I just jumped on. All
0: right, excellent, excellent. So this is episode nine of Mullins and Chow, Joe Collins, Drew Chow Today our guest is Ali Shader. He is running for mayor of the city of Plymouth, Minnesota. Um, Plymouth is the seventh largest city in Minnesota. Uh, census said that it had a population of uh, around 71,000 uh, people in 2010, which I'm sure is bigger now. Did you want to tell us a little bit more about, um, about the city, Ali, since you're there on the ground?
2: Yeah, sure. It's, um, it's uh, right now, the estimate is the, the population is about a little over 77,000 people. Um, it's uh, very much, you know, um, demographics is uh, li- right around mid 80 percent um, white uh, with, uh, you know, a, a smattering of, of different other um, races for the last 15 percent. Um, three pretty, uh, prominent school districts, uh, that, that cover the, cover the city. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a pretty nice, pretty nice city.
0: I was telling, uh, before the call, um, that due to Minneapolis being really long north to south, that, uh, it's actually quite close to downtown Minneapolis. It's only 15 miles west. And in some way, in in that way, it's, uh, a commuter town.
2: For sure. For sure. Um, we've got a, uh, 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 our own, um, transit line that, uh, feeds multiple, multiple buses straight into the city. Um, you know, I, I, used to, I remember I used to take the bus to school when we when I was getting my MBA, um, and it was a good 15 minutes. That's all it took.
0: So, uh, the topic for today, and thank you for giving us a little background, Ali, but the, the topic for today, um, kind of wanted to talk about uh, the refugee crisis. And, you know, the the big spike in the refugee crisis was in Europe in 2015. But we're still kind of dealing with the aftermath of that, uh, not only on a global scale, but on a domestic and local scale. And I thought you would be a really good guest to have on to kind of talk about how that comes into local United States politics, considering that Minnesota has a long history of bringing in a lot of refugees, in fact, had the first American Muslim congressperson, um, some of the first uh, American Muslim people to elected to any office in the United States. Um, and while a lot of that has generally gone on in the urban areas, I think your candidacy is interesting in that you're actually in more of a suburban or ex-urban environment. Um, and so it probably poses some unique conversations that would be different from, um, you know, let's say uh, a Keith or uh, a Ilhan Omar, I believe is how you say her name, right? Right. And Keith Ellison or Ilhan Omar, I I feel like you have a very uh, unique perspective. And I think for you, it's also interesting because unlike Keith, who, uh, you know, African-American and has lived in the United States his whole life, um, you, to my knowledge, were born in Egypt, correct? Correct. Um, and we're not raised in, in the midwest Well, yeah, you weren't raised in the Midwest. You were raised on the East Coast. Correct. Um, so I didn't know if there's something that you kind of want to chime in in terms of what you're seeing there in Minnesota before we kind of talk more about the big picture.
2: Well, from a, from a, um, on the suburban side here in, in Plymouth, I, I wouldn't say that I've seen anything related to the refugee crisis or, or an influx of refugee um, families that are coming in. Uh, I know definitely in the, um, the Islamic Community Center that I belong to, there are individuals who have sponsored um, Syrian families, uh, refugees that, that are fleeing the conflict there. Um, but it's not as it's not as prominent, I would say, um, than in cities like Minneapolis or Saint Paul. Um, I, I mean, I I'd, uh, I mean, there the, there could be multiple reasons for this. Obviously, our our current president and his rhetoric, and and what that has done to um, to the rate that we have been accepting refugees. Um, but I, I would say, for the most part. Um, the The stories that I 've been hearing so far about the refugee families that are coming in and people that have been sponsoring them um, have been related to members of my um, members of my uh, Islamic community center.
0: Interesting now, uh,
2: for the listeners who don't know, there was
0: a bombing, I believe two years ago uh, in the Twin Cities uh, in in Bloomington, Minnesota, which is uh, where the Mall of America is, um, and it 's the third largest city in Minnesota. Um, that was done at Islamic Center and during the two years that I was there getting my MBA alongside Ali um, there was some tensions around the university campus some shootings that happened on campus of uh, Minnesotans multi we'll say multi general Min- Minnesotans people have been there for a while and uh, more recent immigrant groups um, so there's tensions there but at the same time I feel like Minnesota is different from like let's say a North Carolina where you had those three young American Muslims that were killed in, I want to say, the, the research triangle area uh, a while back, uh, where for the most part, I, I feel like there's better integration than particularly
2: what we're seeing in Europe right now. Is that something you might agree with? Um, what do you mean by better integration? I would say it's it's um, Europe had definitely, there there was definitely a, I would categorize Europe in stages, right? You know, I, I would think that initially, in the in the beginning of the refugee crisis, and the initial um, the initial acceptance of of Muslims um, was was kind of like uh, the it was it was uh, heightened in the beginning, um, followed by a couple of the 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 terrorist attacks that happened um, a few years back. Um, and then finally, there was an agreement with the European Union um, putting up uh, the the border walls that they have in Turkey currently, um, which has slowed it down whereas I feel like in the United States it was more of um, related to to um, president obama 's tenure and then um, once the Trump administration took over, uh, it was a complete you know shift in the in the opposite direction um, uh, so it's it's difficult to compare Europe and the United States in those um, under the same lens in my mind, just because um, there are just multiple, uh, a lot more pieces moving in Europe versus the United States, where in, in the United States, it was just uh, an administration change um, with uh, very, very opposing ideals.
0: I guess what I meant by that, so, to clarify, is uh, more kind of interpersonal, or like I said, like physical integration, wherein I feel like from what I saw in the Twin Cities, as opposed to what I had seen um, in the time that I had been in Europe, um, that you will see Muslims living among uh, non-Muslims and, you know, Christians, Jewish people, whoever. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of people who aren't religious at all in the Twin Cities. Uh, Where in uh, places like France, um, you'll have these very much Muslim neighborhoods or in, in England and for whatever reason I don't know if it's self-selecting or or due to um, outside forces I'm not an expert in that regard but it seems like there's it's more of pockets and in some ways almost um, for lack of a better term ghettos uh, which you
2: don't see as much at least in the Twin Cities context. Um. I, I would agree to you to a certain extent. Um I know the, the Somali community in um in Minneapolis uh tends to get grouped together. Um and uh I would say the dominant faith in the Somali community is is um Islam. So it's uh, I, I would agree in some part some respects of your statement. Um generally speaking, when we talk about um, Muslims in general. Um, I, I don't see pockets like you do um, in Europe. However, when we discuss this Mali community, specifically in Minnesota, I do see those pockets.
0: So, due to that, the uh, Ilhan Omar uh, running for Keith Ellison's vacated spot as he runs for uh, Attorney General in Minnesota, this is a big
2: deal. For sure, 100%. This is, um, and I, I mean, we're we're not only seeing this in Minnesota, we're seeing it across. Um, across the united states as well where prominent you know uh, prominent um, politicians are women of color and women who who wear the hijab so it's it, not just not just u s congress you know the um, the state of minnesota has seen i think uh six um six seats when you're talking about u s congress uh school boards um, city councils things like that um, that have all been uh, won by women of color and women who wear the hijab.
0: Do you feel like there's any, what do you feel like the response is among the non-Muslim community to um, this sudden surge in um,
2: in political activism? <sighs> so it's, it's a difficult one, right, because there there's two sides to this i remember when um when the uh when when our president was elected um uh there was a uh, uh i'm trying to remember the reporter's name on on cnn um but he said he he basically said this was this was uh america's worst um worst parts responding to eight years in a in a presidency uh, in the presidency of a black man um in my mind uh, i feel like the the respo- this response what we're seeing right now in the state of minnesota and actually across the united states um is perhaps um that pendulum swinging back the other way that response to the 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 bigotry the all all the racist rhetoric that we've seen over the last 2 years what we're seeing right now is a response to that so so it's good
0: that sounds like it's good if it's responding to uh, kind of what we saw around 2016 timeframe in terms of a lot of the, uh, the uh, racial and um, kind of like the, I would say aggressive rhetoric or the, um, I'm trying to think of a better way to put it. Xenophobic. Yeah. There, oh, thank you. For sure. And so in terms of, I mean, before we get into the last question, just uh, just a few more about you know your particular race. Um, so, how what's kind of your platform, and what's your approach to what you want to do
2: uh, with the city of Plymouth? So, my um, my platform is um, every voice every voice is heard and every voice matters. Um, and I think it's um, it's an important platform because as as we as we continue um, this divisiveness that we 're seeing in the nation going on right now um, i'm i'm starting to lose faith that it could be solved um, at a federal level or even at a state level and i 'm starting to realize that these conversations these um, these, these differences that we have can only be solved um, through open dialogue, through um, lack of, lack of uh, judgment, lack of being ostracized, lack of being alienated at the community level. Um, So our, um, our city council over the last couple of years had disbanded a couple of um, citizen advisory groups that, um, that frankly served at the, at the, to, to advise, I mean, essentially to advise the city council and the mayor, um, one of them being a transportation advisory group, and the second one was a human rights committee. Um, and uh, the members of both of those human, uh, the the members of both of those citizen advisory groups were passionate individuals, they were um, they're extremely um motivated and driven uh in the in the roles that they were assigned that the the roles that they were responsible for which is advising our city council um and after some differences and disagreements, the city council as well as the mayor chose to disband those two citizen advisory groups now um it's 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 one thing right it, when i When I heard about this, the first time I heard about this i I recalled a a quote by Colin Powell when he was in the Army. Um, he said, "The day that your people stop coming to you with your with their problems is the day that you stopped leading them. They either lost confidence that you can help them or concluded that you don't care in either case is a failure of leadership so at the community level, at the base foundation of my platform of every voice being heard and every voice mattering. What are you telling your people if you're willing to do that to just one group or one community member that you're willing to silence them? What are you telling the entire population? You're telling them that you're willing to do that to everyone. And that's not what we need right now, especially at the community level, especially at this divisive time in our country. We need to engage in more dialogue, especially with people who don't agree with our own points of view, because that's that's the only way that it's going to get better.
0: Got it. Got it. Um, For the
2: audience that
0: uh, doesn't know, Ali, before getting his MBA at the University of Minnesota, um, was a bomb tech or a a bomb squad officer with the U.S. Army for what? Four years? Uh, Six years. Six years. And and before that, uh, did four years at the University or Temple University in Philadelphia, Philadelphia being the area that he was raised, predominantly raised. And he also played uh, football for Temple. Um so uh Chabi did you have any further questions for Ali before we get into kind of the panel discussion questions or just the general questions
1: Um that was interesting just one thing I just wanted to ask Ali is um do you feel like there will be more liberal veterans running for office more millennial liberal veterans that are going to step up into these leadership roles in government
2: Um the the optimist in me wants to say yes um uh i think that uh yeah the the military tends to to swing more conservative um in general just because um you know historically it's it's conservatives that have supported um you know increasing uh increasing funding to the military and things like that um however um I, I do believe the peers that I grew up with in the military were um were I wouldn't say liberal, I would say moderate, um uh informed moderates. Um I I I hope um my you know, my faith in in the leaders that the military um produces, I hope that many of them go on to, to continue serving their communities and serving the country um, in political office. Uh, do I think that they're going to continue doing it? I honestly don't know, but I hope they do.
1: Okay, I'm, I'm with you there, actually. I, I hope that we will see a rise in there. I think there is a silent chunk of veterans that lean to the left, and and I think we're going to start to see more of them Occupy uh, positions of influence,
2: and and ju- I mean, just to just to to you know something that you just said, you know, veterans leaning to the left. There could be veterans who lean to the right who who have ideas on how to make this country better and how to make our communities better. Um, and if we don't give them a platform to to say what's on their minds, um, I don't have all the you know I don't have the best ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for people to to feel open enough to um, provide their ideas, knowing that they're contributing to the betterment of our society and not just, you know, fall into that divisive um, nature that we've fallen into in this country over the last two years, which is oh the liberals control the government so i'm not going to speak up i'm going to wait until the next administration comes in or the conservatives are controlling their government i'm just going to wait until until we have enough of liberals that can that can come back and combat it you know we're we're all on the same team here we're all trying to make this country better we're all trying to make our communities better and it's best that we continue to engage in open dialogue with one another so i i i i hope there are um there are more rational um and informed veterans who are willing to step up and serve in public office, regardless of their liberal being liberal or conservative. Um, so long as they're uh, willing to, to keep an open mind, um, to keep an open ear and continue to serve their communities, um, in the best way that they can and the right way that they can. All right.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. I think there is a lot of value to uh, the conservative voices as well. And it is refreshing to hear you, uh, to hear you so willing to reach across the aisle, because you're absolutely right. We are on the same team and we need to get back to thinking that way.
0: For sure. So um, a little background on the refugee crisis, Uh, the one in Europe in particular happened after the Arab Spring, uh, which the beginning rumblings of it were in uh, 2009, 2010, Um, a bunch of different uh, regimes in the Middle East were toppled in uh, Egypt, Tunisia, um, I believe Libya, and then, you know, most recently Syria, which descended into a civil war. And in fact, uh, while Chavez and I were serving, I probably you as well, Ali, um, was during the civil uh, war in Syria. Um, and so Europe started having a lot of people crossing via land and sea, uh, particularly through boat, and a lot of boats coming from uh, Libya as well as as Syria um, in 2015, um, it, it spiked. Um, and since then, has has kind of subsided. Um, but it's still a major issue, and in integrating um, these new arrivals has been a major issue. Now, the number I have for October 2015 was you were seeing 221,000, almost 222,000, um, hitting Europe um, at that time. Um, in and that was in that month so i guess just october uh in may of 2018 that number's gone down to about ten and a half thousand um not only is it um difficult when those people are trying to integrate into europe but many have been lost at sea um and that's kind of the big tragedy in this is how many people are actually never even making it to europe or they get to europe and they get sent back and they try to make another trip and then they perish um, in the united states uh, we had Trump in 2016 with an immigration ban from a lot of the company, uh, countries that were uh, affected by these civil wars. Um, and so with that, I have five different myths about the refugee crisis, and I want both of you guys to answer whether or not you agree with it or disagree and why. So the first question, or the first myth, and this comes from an article in The Guardian by Daniel Trilling came out in June. Um, The first myth is the crisis is over.
1: I'll jump in here. The crisis is not over. It's far from over. It's just going to continue along this way until we figure out a way to deal with it. And I think that point has already passed.
2: Um, I would agree that the crisis is far from over. There are still... um, hundreds of, of um millions of people um or or you know tens million tens of millions hundreds of millions of people um who are displaced without homes um who uh are 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 in refugee camps that are across Europe um that do not have any um any any they don't know where the light at the end of the tunnel is for them. Um this is absolutely far from over.
0: Okay. So, so you both agree with uh, Mr. Trilling on that one. So myth two, he says, we can neatly, uh, the second myth is we can neatly separate refugees from economic migrants.
1: I, uh, that is actually a good question. I don't think we're doing a good job doing that so far. Because, I mean, amidst all of these uh, all of these conflicts. You have refugees coming from Syria, but you also have a lot of economic migrants coming from Eritrea and various other countries. So, And they're not uh, bringing highly skilled laborers to the country that they're moving into. So it's, it's just creating a crisis for people that already live in Europe where they just don't have anywhere to put these people and they don't have a reasonable way of dealing with this massive wave of migrants just flowing into the country with uh, no no structural design to to cater to all of them.
2: Um, just to just to just to ask the question, Joe, you said that we can neatly um, we can neatly. Uh, can you, Can you say that again
0: we can neatly separate refugees from economic migrants, and the writer is saying that this is a myth that we can't do that
2: um, i i i I agree that this is a myth um i mean we, we're we're all economic migrants right i i mean it's it's hard to distinguish why one person is moving to one place for one reason or the other? Um, it's. I mean, I I moved to Minnesota as an economic migrant after I left the military. Um, someone could have moved to Minnesota because who who has looked like me, um, and they could have come from come from Syria as part of the refugee crisis. Uh, I think just that stark difference between me as well as a as a, a refugee migrant. Um, Yes, I, I absolutely think it's a myth. We can't. We can't.
0: Yeah, I, w- I mean, I will we'll chime in right in there with you. I actually think it's really interesting that uh, we don't talk about interstate refugees, or at least we don't call them that, right? Uh, and a lot of times you see people move. Things. Like, in, for example, I met this guy from North Carolina in Minnesota, and I, he, he had an engineering degree. And I was like, why are you in Minnesota? And he was a black dude from North Carolina and uh, I was like, you know, why did you decide to come to Minnesota? And he said, the, the economic opportunities here are just, you know, not, not like anything else. And I was like, but don't you have the research try and go down there in North Carolina? He said, it's still not as good.
2: Right.
1: Yeah, I don't think that those two things are really comparable, deeper than a cosmetic level, honestly. Why? I mean, you're, you're already a citizen of the country, you speak the language, you're immersed in the culture, You probably got your schooling done here like you were a part of this uh, societal fabric already so uh, you don't have to learn a different language if you go from north
0: carolina to minnesota
1: okay and well, your I, skills are highly transferable as well
0: i guess i was agreeing with ali though because in ali's case he was raised in philly went to the military and then from washington state moved to minnesota and that was what he was saying in, in that way he's an economic migrant and, and okay. so so is that well, maybe that's what we're saying is the difference, is that refugees are people who traverse international borders and economic migrants are ones that just traverse state borders?
1: That's not what I was saying, but.
0: Well, I'm I'm, no. I'm asking the question, right? That's why I'm, I'm just saying, like, is that the line? Um, because there, it sounds like you're saying there is some line to what a refugee is.
1: Right. Yeah. So I think um, a refugee would be somebody that's escaping absolute famine or genocide or something like that. Someone who would claim asylum or refugee status would be coming from somewhere like Syria. But if somebody's just coming from a poor country, it tends to be
0: an economic migrant. So, Ali, it sounds like
2: you want to chime in. Yeah, I mean, I. An economic refugee uh, I struggle with the term refugee right because because it's it's a it's a protected it's a protected um status right by by most countries that follow it, our our common international law right so I struggle with the term refugee um versus economic migrant just because there's um there are a lot of legal uh a lot of legal protections for a refugee that aren't necessarily there for an economic migrant. So from a neat the the initial question of we can neatly separate economic refugees from um or economic migrants from refugees I I would say from on a superficial level that that is a myth we can't separate them. Um, but on a, on a deeper level, I guess, uh, maybe we can separate them just because, um, I feel like economic migrants would have to jump through a lot more hoops, um, and, uh, go through a lot of, a lot more bureaucratic, uh, steps in order to gain access to to a particular border. Whereas because the status of a refugee is protected under international law, um, there is there are a lot less things that they have to do to gain access to countries through a country's borders.
1: Do you think that that is unfair?
2: Um, No, I think that's that shows our humanity, right? You know, there's a reason why refugee status is protected. It's because we we understand that there are certain places in the world that are not habitable or not suitable for for human habitat. And we're willing to we're willing to extend our hands as fellow humans to to help those people who we've never met who are a part of a different culture and 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 help them out of that certain situation whereas with economic um economic migrants you know a country can continue to to prosper economically um and still have people who are poor who are migrating to a different area because um they can't find work um mm-hmm. so i i don't I don't think it's unfair. The, the differences between a refugee and an economic migrant.
1: Okay. I'm with you there. I think we need to make the distinction between
2: mass migration
1: and the normal flow of immigration that happens within a country. So the pro- the difference right. between here and Europe is Europe is having massive influx of, uh, of economic migrants mixed in with the refugees and they're having a hard time keeping track of it they're having a hard time assimilating it's just a massive cultural shift it's kind of like a force of nature whereas typical economic migration comes comes and goes it's it's something that's always existed and it's been manageable but when it's a massive wave of people coming into a small country with a certain language and a certain culture and certain demands that they they have economically it's going to be a really a whole different scenario that we're talking about here.
2: I agree with that. Hmm,
0: interesting. So myth myth number three is telling human stories is enough to change people's minds. And I guess when he, when this uh, writer, uh, Mr. What's his name? Trilling, I believe. Um, what he's trying to say is like, if you just try to, make it a sob story that you will get people who don't believe there should be so much immigration to change their mind. That's the approach it seems he's talking about. is changing yeah. people who are anti-immigration.
1: That is a double-edged sword because we've seen the sob stories go both ways. So we're familiar with the, uh, the story that would be like, and I won't say sob story, I'll say they're harrowing because a lot of them are. You'll see someone that really genuinely needs asylum. And they'll tell their story and the horrible things that they had to face to get to where they are. And they're trying to find like their family's been separated and they're trying to just get back to some type of stability in their life. And I think that that is going to hit people at a human level and it's going to make them feel empathy, but it can also be used against them. Say if a, a migrant or a refugee commits a crime or if somebody tries to commit a terror attack that will be weaponized as well to make it seem like all of these people are part of that group. So I've seen the stories go both ways. I saw a story with a young Syrian who was saying that he was ecstatic that Trump was firing missiles into Syria because he doesn't want to be a migrant. He wants to stay there and live in his own country. And that was used by Fox News to say this is really what people want to do. So whichever side you fall on, the the human tales can be used to tug at people's heartstrings to push a particular narrative. And that's why while I do see the inherent value in listening to the human stories, you also have to look at the facts and you have to try to pull back as far as you can to look at it objectively so that you won't be swayed by emotion.
0: It's a good point, and I, he doesn't even address that in this article. But basically, what you're saying is, yes, he's wrong in this regard because human stories isn't just one way; it depends on what humans you're talking about.
1: Yeah, it absolutely does.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, I, I, uh, I, the optimist in me wants to believe that that people can, can have empathy for, for their fellow human being. Um, But uh, I've seen scenarios specifically with, you know, I know this isn't the topic of discussion right now, but um, the, the families um, who are being separated at the U S Mexico border. um, And I I've seen them balk at, at some of the, the human stories um, and it doesn't, Tug at their heartstrings. It affirms what they believe. It's you know, people have said, oh, they shouldn't have come here in the first place. Or, um, you know, I've I've heard stories about the uh, responses to to some of the those human stories in the refugee crisis in Syria. So you know, well maybe they should have, maybe they should have fought harder in their country. Maybe they should have fought harder for their land um, as opposed to just running away from it. Um, it's it's a it's a pretty sad um, truth, but no, I don't I don't believe that human stories um, could be uh, are enough to change people's minds. I think uh, at the end of the day, we're selfish beings. And for us to be truly affected by something, it has to happen to to us or it has to happen to someone that we know personally or, or is affected or are affected by directly, um, such as a family member.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, in that case, uh, just to quickly deviate and go about what you were talking about earlier with this um, this group you're trying to re- rebuild in, in Plymouth that got sidelined by the previous mayor. Um, I mean, it sounds like to a certain extent that this group was to represent minorities, whether that be LGBTQ women, um, uh, ethnic minorities, religious minorities. But you said that it's not a very... Uh, diverse population, um, how can you win if human stories aren't going to be what allows you to reestablish that group?
2: Because it's what, what I am trying to appeal to um, with, my fellow, um, with my fellow community members is our sense of wanting to work together for the greater good. Um, and the only way to do that is together and not divided so a uh, a response with um by you know a, a story about how you know the specific reason why this um human rights committee was disbanded in plymouth um is because they were fighting for um an elderly home uh the city was subsidizing their uh their living situation and uh there was a docket i or there was an item on the docket sheet um, to stop subsidizing uh, these, um, these elderly citizens just because the, the city had, had use for, for the money elsewhere. Um, now, on one hand, on the business side of it, it you, know, you, you have to make cuts where you can, but on the, the human side of it, it's, you know, if you subsidize these people's living conditions um, and then you take that away, you're essentially putting them on, out on the street. You know this is how they're they're living right now, and if you take their means to to pay for their for their homes, it goes away. But from what I found is that this story hasn't appealed to anyone that I talked to. What mm-hmm. has appealed to people whom I talked to, it's it's the um, our city council disbanded groups that were giving us advice on things that we may not agree on, um, and it's. Important for us to maintain the fact that we 're not always going to agree on everything. What matters is what we do when we disagree do we do we silence each other or do we respectfully um, disagree with one another, knowing fully well that each side wants to wants to do what 's best for the community um, and that to me has has had uh, a much more positive response than. Um, appealing to the, to the human nature of people, to the human side of people, and try to tug at their heartstrings that way. So if, I, if I'm understanding you
0: correctly, basically earlier on you were talking about how veterans, whether they were left-leaning or right-leaning, should come in and try to be rational leaders, and you're saying the rational appeal, at least in the context of Plymouth, Minnesota, is more effective than trying to make an emotional appeal. Correct. Awesome, that's great. So myth number four is the crisis is a threat and I'm going to modify it. It says the crisis is a threat to European values. We'll say the crisis is a threat to European or American values Um, just to like broad for both. So or both regions.
1: Yeah. So I don't think that when we're talking about immigration here, I don't think that America has a problem with assimilation. I don't think we have a problem with uh, people coming from countries with conflicting values that carries over here. Largely, any type of migrant groups or immigrants that come here tend to fall into place in our society. So we don't have massive refugee camps here. We have everybody's pretty much working. We don't have the issues that they're having in Europe. So I do think it's they're two completely separate issues because what you're seeing in Europe is a complete clash of cultures. So you're having people that really weren't planning on being refugees a couple years ago, as most people, I would assume don't. And uh, they ended up in Europe and they have these values that aren't Aligned with European values, they look at women differently, they don't see uh, non Muslim women as respectable. So you see issues like what happened in Germany on New Year's either last year, or the year before, where there was this massive wave of sexual assaults and there was too many for them to actually document. So they're 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 really in for a hard time in Europe and they're not handling it well. They're not handling it well trying to fix it with legislation or either ignore it completely.
0: So you're saying the European uh, governments aren't handling it well?
1: No. They either go far left like in Sweden or far
0: right like in uh, Italy. I mean, I keep on... I was going to save it for um, later when we talk about McCain.
1: Sorry, I think it might. It it is kind of an existential threat for them at some level. And yeah, I I think so, because, I mean, how do you handle hundreds of thousands of young men? It's uh, not a whole lot of families coming there. How do you handle all of these people with nowhere to go that really... Don't bring much to the table when it comes to working in your country. And on top of that, have no real desire to assimilate.
0: I'm going to let you take that one, Ali.
2: Yeah, I mean, so I think it's important to to define what European values are. For, for number one, um, I I would argue that um, a lot of uh, the the circumstances that the Middle East finds itself in as a result of the British and French mandates um, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So the circumstances that we're seeing right now is a result of um, European colonialism um, at, at its at its finest. Um, so. To that point, I wonder what European values are um, and, and I wonder if Europe itself has forgotten its history of of being rich with um, multiple you know diverse uh, ethnic as well as religious groups um, over the past few centuries um, uh, you know it's it's pretty arrogant for anyone who thinks that their values are are Above and beyond anything else it's um, i find it I find it troubling and I find it um bewildering almost that w- they can they can idly stand by and say that this is this is against everything that they stand for, where this some of these things that are happening right now are a result of um what their countries had done in over the last century. I mean, so where I was going to go with it was, um, again,
0: at the end, we're going to talk a little bit about John McCain, um, but I, this is a perfect time to reference his farewell letter, letter, and in his letter, he reiterates what he said before, that America is a country of, of ideals, not blood and soil, and mm-hmm. I think one of the questions here, or one of the conflicts is, is Europe, are the nations of Europe uh, nations of ideals, or are they nations of blood and soil and I think that Chavez is saying that historically, they are nations of blood and soil. I, I guess I would say it depends on the country. Uh, certainly, England and France um, have made more overtures to democracy and tolerance and uh, progressive values and, and Scandinavia as well. But then there are countries that have never made uh, proclamations saying that they cared about those things as much as their ethnicity and their cultural identity. Uh, And so I think the difficult part to understand is that, well, it it makes sense that the places that would have the biggest immigrant populations would be the ones that were most tolerant and and tried to adhere to their virtues the most. But it's almost a continuation of like what happened during World War II, where you had all these uh, Africans and most of them were from Muslim countries, Muslim majority countries in West Africa. And they went and fought for the French uh, during World War II. And then when they tried to get French citizenship afterwards or um, go into certain French establishments, they were treated with a lot of hostility. And it seems like it's uh, an extension of that and kind of like uh, Ali... What you're saying is that it's like people have a very short memory for where these problems are stemming from and and how uh, Middle Easterners and Africans and Muslims have uh, contributed um, to European peace and European progress. Um, I think that's the direction it sounds like you're going
2: i'd also um, claim the opposite as well is that Europeans have had um, a direct hand in the current conflicts that are going on in the Middle East and Africa um, by by either means of direct conflict, colonialization or clandestine means
0: but does that obligate them to taking in refugees from those regions
2: yes absolutely if you have if you are directly responsible for in pla- placing a dictator who is committing mass genocide, it is absolutely your responsibility to rectify that.
0: Do we see that with Muslim majority countries?
2: What do you mean by that?
0: Okay, uh, the most recent example I can think of, and I don't know, this is why I'm asking the question, is Saudi has had a huge hand in the conflict in Yemen. Are they opening their borders to Yemenis and resettling them and giving them you know, like giving them citizenship and and everything.
2: Um, I am not as familiar with um, the Saudi and Yemeni conflict. I know Saudi Arabia has um, been conducting massive military campaigns in Yemen um, that have uh, displaced millions of people, um, citizens, not um, no no com- uh, enemy combatants. Um, So yes, I believe that a country that has shown um, no military aggression towards another sovereign nation um, and has only shown um, aggression by means of uh, pockets of terrorist cells, um, any company, any country, um, any sovereign nation that attacks those terrorist cells and therefore um, displaces millions of people from their homes is responsible for um, rectifying, rectifying that. So you'd say that in, in, from what you know of that conflict,
0: Saudi Arabia is responsible for rectifying the situation, whether they do or not, it doesn't matter, but in your value system, in your view, they, they, bear responsibility
2: for rectifying Correct. the situation. Correct. If, if it was Yemen, the, the, the sovereign nation of Yemen who had, um, engaged in combat with Saudi Arabia, then, um, I, in in my value, I, I I don't believe that there would be responsibility from Saudi Arabia then. But since Saudi Arabia is conducting military campaigns to target terrorist cells and not directly the the state of Yemen, um, it is Saudi Arabia's responsibility to rectify any um, collateral uh, that they commit by by displacing people, by um, killing innocent civilians. Um, it is their responsibility to rectify those um, those acts and
0: so in in direct answer to this question, you think that, in your view european values this is stemming from what you view to be european values is or this is just your about, you 're just saying what you think they should do, not necessarily what european values um,
2: i mean again again, I asked the question of what Europe? what are European values? are we talking about um, are, are we talking about this this ideal image of what a a western um, country or union of nation looks like? Um, are we are we talking about uh, xenophobic mindsets uh, being synonymous with European values? I, I again I struggle with what European values are because our ideals as American values is you know give me your your tired your hungry and your huddled masses. Um, but our current president has stated that he doesn't agree with well he. He didn't say that he doesn't agree with it, but his acts have have for the most parts stated that he doesn't agree with it. So um, a country can have values all day long, but their acts are what what end up winning at the end. Action.
1: Um, yeah. So I think uh, I think what the phrase what I think it should be reframed as Western values or that's how we should describe it. It would be somewhat similar to what we have here. So that would be freedom of speech, equal rights, um, trial by jury, things like that, like guilty or innocent until proven guilty, just the right to votes, um, basic values that we all hold. It's like we start off having these things being enforced culturally and we adopt them and carry them on. And when you introduce something that is in stark contrast to that, it's going to be like oil and water so
2: so go ahead so my 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 question is then, is part of that value system um, being being uh, recognizing that there are other humans on this planet um, and that we are in in the the system or or the business of trying to build a better world?
1: We absolutely are. I just don't think that the solution is just accepting massive waves of people. And again, this is Europe, not here. Accepting massive waves of people without a plan, without really conferring with your own population or trying to figure out how to fit this puzzle piece in. So you're doing everyone a disservice by doing that. You have the migrants living in uh, these massive camps like Calais, And they're sitting there for years sometimes and they end up seeing, you just end up seeing people that are disgruntled with having refugees pouring into their actual neighborhoods and people that don't feel safe in their own neighborhoods anymore. So it's, it's easy for us to look at it from an altruistic perspective being here where that doesn't happen. But if you're at your house or at your ranch and it's, and you're in, France or Denmark or wherever, and it's constantly being robbed, and that didn't happen a couple years ago. Or you just, or you're a young woman and you literally don't feel safe walking down the streets of Stockholm anymore. It's a problem, and this is a new problem. So I don't think it's necessarily xenophobia in this case, again, different from the US, because we really don't have a reason to fear. This type of immigration here, it doesn't happen here. Both.
0: Well, could could it also be? And you, you bring up a really good point that like, so for somebody from the Middle East to come to the U.S., it costs a lot of money. You're not just taking a boat and coming over here the way mm-hmm. that you know maybe somebody from Latin America might be able to. It, by the time you get here, the the expenses are so massive that you're going to get people who have some sort of means, some 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 sort of exposure uh, outside of of the poor, um segments of society of the society that they're coming from. Um, And because of that, you know, I think we don't hear the call for political Islam in the United States because most people, it seems like that most people who come to the United States from uh, the Middle East and North Africa um, are are very well versed in the history of the United States and kind of the political system. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're saying that because there's so many people coming so fast and they're coming from every segment of society and probably many of them from the poorest segments of society um, that it's you're not getting quite the same um, types of people. And my question, I guess, to you, Ali, is like, do you see that as a, as a legitimate argument? And two, where does political Islam fall into this? Because you do see some calls for political Islam in Europe that you have not seen um, in the United States. And particularly, you know, it's interesting you being from Egypt, and I'm, I mean, you're not like the most, it's not like you go to Egypt all day, every day, but um, I've met quite a people, quite a few people from Egypt coming from under the um, Mubarak, uh, who lived under Mubarak, and there still is the question of where does religion fall in the state? And to my knowledge, most of those North African countries still are is quote-unquote Islamic republics. Um, and right. I believe that Leaving the, the Islamic faith should be punishable by death. Not all North Africans, but there's a substantial segment, um, and some of them I served with in the military.
2: Right, and and just to just to point out to your last point, um, there's a the verse in the Quran that says there's no compulsion in religion. So any, I'm I humbly disagree um, with anyone that says that leaving the faith of Islam is punishable by death. Um, but to your point, um, I, I I think let let me just just take a take a step back. I think your point about um, allowing massive amounts of people to enter your nation without a plan is valid. Um, I think there are multiple issues, uh, uh, public safety issues, health issues that that are concerns when it comes to. Um, individuals coming from a different, uh, different part of the world. Uh, you know, you don't know if they're vaccinated, you don't know what diseases they're bringing over and what epidemics they might be bringing over to your country. So I, I agree with your point of having a plan when accepting a massive amount of people is completely valid. Um, to the point about the the place of political Islam um, a government, a government is, should be set up for the people by the people. Right? This is something that I believe in. Um, if a group of individuals or society believes that um, they should be governed by um, a, a political Islamic group or governed by Sharia law, um, and it is the consensus of that society that this is the right government to go with. Um, who are we to tell them no i don't think democracy is the the greatest government the greatest form of government out there it works for us it doesn't mean that it works for everyone in the world um if there are calls for political islam in in europe uh i think that's that's a problem because every every country spoken for um every country <laughs> has a government out there uh, it's going to be kind of hard to to start a political movement, a political Islamic movement in, in Europe just because, you know, there are already sovereign nations out there. However, if there is an Islamic Republic like in the Middle East um, who wants to go more towards um, a traditional view of, of uh, Islamic law then and, and the consensus of the society is that this is what they should do, then who are we to stop them?
0: you got anything on that okay
2: so
1: essentially and correct me if i'm wrong and i might be you are basically saying that if people if enough people did want some type of uh, islamic rule in europe you would be okay with that
2: uh not necessarily europe just because i'm saying that they already have established governments they have established countries um if i i mean like we're we're talking like extreme hypothetical here if a country in europe um saw a massive civil war um and the entire government was toppled and there were calls to uh to to come up with a a new form of government in that nation i mean we're we're ex- we're in the the almost almost in the lane of science fiction here, but if this is the route that we went to, and enough people in that nation um, wrote, uh, asked for asked for Islamic law in that nation um, i i I'm not saying I agree with it or disagree with it I'm saying that I don't have a business of disagreeing with it if a group of people want to be ruled under a specific set of laws. That is their prerogative. If a citizen uh, of that country no longer wants to be a part of those laws, they can move to a different country similar to how we can move to a different state. Especially in, in, a, in a in a union like the European Union where, where citizens of the European Union are free to move and free to work across nation borders.
0: Mm-hmm. For now. <laughs> yeah, for now. For now. It's quickly changing. <laughs> uh, and then the last one is, for these myths, history is repeating and there's nothing we can do about it. And I think the context of that is it's saying that this will lead to a rise in uh, in ethno-nationalism in Europe. Oh yeah, that's happening.
1: That's been bubbling under the surface for a while and everything when compared to how it is here is more extreme in pockets of Europe. But we are seeing um, a lot of uh, fascism light popping up in places like Italy, for example, and that all they really needed for that was a massive migrant crisis to get people back on that Mussolini train.
2: Completely agree.
0: I I loved HMO. So Helen Moser was the finance professor that Ali and I had um, at the University of Minnesota, and she used to love to quote Warren Buffett and say, um, "No, not Warren Buffett, Mark Twain, who would say history doesn't repeat itself, but it often often rhymes." I see things that are similar, but I see things that are somewhat different. Um, Jews were in Europe for a very—I I mean, that's the direction it's going, right? Jews were in Europe for a very long time. The migrations happened over hundreds of years and they had positions of power. So when the fascist uh, governments were trying to fund their war machines, they went to these Jewish communities and basically stole their property from them in order to finance the war machine. I don't see Muslim European Muslims having as much wealth as uh, European Jews did in the 1930s. Um, and i also feel like having social media where the news travels faster and is more transparent it, i mean you could also argue that it 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 moves um mass emotion a lot faster too um but i i do see it as a moderating um, a moderating influence and especially like i said coupled with the fact that these refugees aren't like the bankers of europe you know which i think changes things a little
2: yeah yeah, but I would say that if over the course of the next 150 200 years you have multiple generation of these muslim migrants um assimilate into european societies that it's definitely a possibility for for something like um something like the the jews who who migrated to europe um in the 1930s i think that that's definitely a possibility to happen how about the united states
0: i mean and and in the United States, I think it's really important that we expand it to Latin American uh, refugees and and immigrants because honestly, their number the numbers of Latin Americans is way higher um, than um, than Muslim Americans. Where do you think that that goes? As I'd like let say, as we have more states that are that say twenty percent Spanish speaking, thirty percent Spanish speaking, uh, you know.
1: I think um for I think America's going to become a bilingual country for sure. I think we're going to see a lot more Latin influence here. And um I think more movies are going to be made in Spanish. We're going to watch more stand-up specials in Spanish. I think that's already starting to happen. And I think it's uh I think it's a good thing for people to learn more than one language honestly we're the only country that doesn't value that
0: so you're seeing something more like a canada where everyone knows some french and some english and you kind of have your place that you're at but you know enough to get by in the other spots
1: yeah i think that'll yeah that's a good point and i think it'll take on a bigger form like that already exists if you go to miami they look at you crazy if you don't speak spanish in most of that city so it i feel like uh it'll take over larger portions of it and that'll just be parts of America that speak Spanglish and Spanish. And I think people will get accustomed to that.
0: No thoughts, Ali?
2: I think the United States, um, is, is a different animal on its own than Europe. Um, I think, our our um, bipartisan system, um, our fellow Republicans, um, as well as as well as some Democrats, um, do not um, value that sort of uh, assimilation because um, a lot of frankly a lot of their constituents um, do not value that kind of assimilation, um, and will be uh, will be very quick to to try to oppose any. Um, even though I know it's happening and I understand it's happening and, um, in an organic fashion. Um, but I don't, I think there's going to be much more opposition in the United States to having a more assimilated, um, Latin American culture, um, than, than say would happen, um, would happen in Europe. Just because I feel like, uh, I mean, frankly, just to put it bluntly, um, we're pretty racist in this country, um, and anything that's different, we we have opposed it for time and time again until it's until it's just manifested itself in an organic fashion, um, and then that's what we that's what we we claim is the the norm at that point. And then when the next change comes, we oppose it as much as we can until it takes over organically, and then that becomes the new norm. Um, I don't think it's going to be as easy. Um, to to assimilate Latin American culture into the U.S. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I think um, most countries are pretty much like that. Like uh, I was talking to my friend from Mexico the other day who lives here now. And she was talking about how nobody really brings culture and influence into Mexico. You just become Mexican or you get out. They really have no interest in learning about other cultures, other languages, they're really tightly knit and tightly bound to the Mexican identity. So I think we're definitely more open than people think we are. And it's hard to get a gauge on that because of our current administration and the things that we're seeing in the media and experiences that we have. But by and large, I think this country is still very racist. I'm not going to try to even remotely deny that. I think it's less racist than it is perceived to be. And I think it's going to progressively get less racist, especially when more and more people are multi-ethnic. And the next couple of generations we see, it's going to be mostly interracial marriages in this country, mostly multicultural households and families, and there's going to be a lot more globalist cities. So I think we are really on the path to becoming that melting pot that faceless nation of ideals that this country was always supposed to be
2: do you think that we are going to start seeing some pockets of segregated individuals who self-segregate based on their race
1: we already do see that in some areas and i hope not but it's it's a possibility that could very well end up happening
0: I mean, I would argue that that happens a lot right now. Yeah. um, And this is a whole other topic for a whole other time. But, you know, one thing I've definitely seen is uh, that I'd like to hear more people talk about is how a lot of immigrant groups will come to the United States in order to position themselves um, in the socioeconomic hierarchy of the country. They do what every upper middle class or, you know, and above or middle class and above group has done in this country and kind of denigrate. Um, the groups that have been traditionally denigrated in this country so like especially Native Americans and Africans and uh, I mean there's exceptions to every rule uh, but I'm out here in LA and I can tell you right now there's a lot of uh, kind of ethnic cul-de-sacs or ethnic enclaves and a lot of people who are just adopting uh, the, the overarching racial narrative of whiteness that's existed in the country uh, since it's, you know, since some of the things we talked about in some of our previous episodes.
2: <laughs> it's almost like a tribalistic lifestyle.
0: Yeah. So, I you know, I don't, I definitely think there's, there's some regions um, that are more open, uh, definitely in the countries or the states that already have a lot of uh, Latin Americans, because those cultures aren't um, as race conscious as they are color conscious. Um, those ones will tend to have a lot more mixing going on. Um, But yeah, it's a big country. And I think that it's a long ways away from a a faceless society, as you said, or a one, uh, is that what you call the child? I can't remember, single face? Yeah,
1: I said uh, faceless as in like a gray face. Like America doesn't, America won't always have it's hard to describe. It won't always have some type of ethnic identity attached to it. Like like uh, some far right wingers want to hold on to now. And I don't think that that's where this country is headed.
2: I said the same thing right before the election of Donald Trump. Um, yeah. yeah, we... Are, I was... I was okay. No, I I was, I was proven wrong. I was proven wrong. And I think a part of it is that I I live, um, I realized that I lived um, with a certain set of ideals and I surrounded myself with the, the people of the same ideals, not realizing, like you said, Joe, it's a really big country and what I perceive to be, to be the norm or reality may not necessarily be true. Everywhere at least.
1: Yeah, that's true. And honestly, I think Trumpism is, America sweating out a fever. I think we've had this issue and we've been afraid to deal with it. It's we've known that this is under the surface and this is the beginning of the healing process. I think maybe that's incredibly optimistic, but that's just how I see this situation going. I don't think that this type of uh, latent white supremacy that's always been an issue in this country can carry on.
0: So last question to wrap things up here. and We'll make it a little more local, um, a little more specific. Uh, So let's say uh, Ilhan wins. Well, one, will Ilhan Omar win uh, Minnesota's fifth congressional seat? Um, And do you think that most of the Muslims running for public office in in the country are going to win this year? And if they do win, um, to my understanding, most of them are on the Democratic ticket. Uh, what are the implications of that for 2020?
2: Uh, I I believe Ilhan will win um, the fifth congressional district, um, and I believe that most Muslims will win um, their their respective um, the respective offices that they're running for, not because of their faith, but because of um, the point that I mentioned um, at the beginning of the conversation. Uh, I, I think the the partisan pendulum is swinging back um, to to the blue side, and it's um, and we're seeing victories not just with um, Muslims in Minnesota or Muslims around the country, but we're also seeing it with. Um, uh, an up-and-coming uh, U.S. representative with Beto O'Rourke in Texas going up against Ted Cruz. We're seeing it with um, uh, many other Democrats um, across the nation who are are succeeding in previously uh, known to be uh, Republican strongholds. Um, I, I don't think the faith has has anything to do with why they're so successful. I think it's their party affiliation and what those party um, values stand for, um, mainly being more inclusiveness and diversity. Um, what it means for the ticket in 2020? Uh, honestly, I think we are as, as unfortunate as it sounds, what um, Donald Trump has done to, to the Democratic Party is that it's made it instead of liberal um, to be more uh, more closely associated with socialism, and I think that the next candidate on the ticket for the Democratic Party will have more socialist ideals than um, than capitalist ideals.
0: Due to just all the win- all the wins, like why? I,
2: I just I, I just think again the the pendulum is swinging back, and for someone to defeat um, a, a person like Donald Trump. Um, He has to match the extremism, but on the other side. Um, And that is uh, extremely liberal um, and borderline socialist.
1: Hmm. I would agree with that.
0: Very, very interesting. Well, man, uh, Ali, I wish you uh, best of luck in your election. And I know that win, lose, or draw is not the last we'll have heard of you in the political arena.
2: Not by a long shot. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for coming on, Ali, and good luck with
0: everything.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you.
0: All right. So uh, with Ali dropping off here, we're going to go ahead and do our um, leader of the free world and um, also our evil genius of the week. I think me and you have the same leader of the free world this week. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, great minds. You know what they say. (laughs) So why why is John McCain your leader
1: of the free world? Uh, I was going to say Lady Gaga. We're not saying... (laughs) Who is John McCain? (laughs) All right, so (laughs) John McCain, just because... I mean, political scandals aside, um, questionable policy choices aside, I think that McCain stood the watch for his entire adult life. And I think he... Sacrificed a lot for his country. I think um, I think he tried to do his best to to help this country become its best version of itself. It's super tacky to say that, I know, but uh, I I just think he uh, he was an honorable dude. And another thing, I just read this article that he chose a Russian dissident. As, his paw, as one of his pallbearers, as a final little middle finger to Putin and Trump. Which is yeah. a very McCain move.
0: Yeah, so definitely John McCain, to me, um, ultimate statesman, everything you're seeing in the news, uh, Maverick. Um, <clears throat> he appealed to some of his uh, political operatives too much instead of trusting his gut, I mm-hmm. believe. I think yep. he, uh, he should just uh, trusted his gut a little bit more stuck to his guns. Uh, but overall, um, I mean, he represented what was best in America, and he did it as a Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just, you just have to give it up. So I, I think that's enough said on that one. Uh, Evil Genius of the Week.
1: Alright, so I'll tell you why it's evil and then I'll tell you why it's genius and it goes into everything we just talked about right before Ali signed off. So my evil genius is going to go to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Twitter followers (laughs) and the dredge of humanity that comprises that group. So she said she sent out a very warm, respectful tweet regarding uh, John McCain's passing and every single comment joe like hundreds of them save for a couple like literally a couple less than five out of the tons of them that i read were just vile and not only trashing john mccain and assassinating his entire character just no respect for somebody who serves the country in any capacity they were disowning her and this and saying that she's been co-opted she's been She's been inducted into the Illuminati or whatever. And uh, that's kind of the problem. And this is why it's genius is you have a bunch of people that don't know what they're talking about, Trojan horsing socialism and sometimes flat out communism, a lot of hammer and sickle Twitter eggs. They're trying to Trojan horse their way into our government. And it's hopefully going to show it's true nature before we let that happen
0: hmm. yeah i mean we've we've talked about her before, and i I think that she has uh really good intentions, mm-hmm. uh, but she's got uh i mean so she got her degree, I believe, in political science at Boston University. I'm sure she got a decent education there um but I, I still don't believe that an undergraduate degree uh, gives you the breadth of of um, context and historical background um, to know it all on day one when you're like what twenty seven years old twenty eight years old yeah what um, a
1: what would a basket of deplorables be for liberals is it like the what is it like the hemp alternative non plastic bag. That you carry yourself to Whole Foods? Is there a name for that, Joe? (laughs) I'm just asking.
0: Uh, I'm not sure that I I have a good
1: one. I'm not saying she's in the basket. I'm saying she's carrying it.
0: You know what I'm saying? Well, what would be interesting for me to know is how many of these people are actually in her district, right? Yeah. I mean, her district historically has very low voter turnout.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is more of a... uh, this is more of a, um, uh, I would say, what's the term for this? A harbinger of what's maybe to come. I think that's why it's important to keep our eyes on it. Yeah, and I mean... Twitter is horrible and some a lot of, in a lot of ways inconsequential, but it it does have its impact.
0: I mean, I hope I really do hope that she becomes a. Uh a um, well-informed and effective politician. Don't get me wrong. Of course. Um, But I just hope that she doesn't make any huge mistakes along the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And some of the things she jumped to saying right after she won the nomination is though, and I mean, I guess she kind of did because the the borough she's in, the district that she's in. Um, But yeah, man, like it, (laughs) I really hope she plays it cool. That's all I can say. (laughs) I really (laughs) hope she does. And yes. unfortunately, like you said, just even being silent, or even just saying that's a decent person, uh, unfortunately, now you can get attacked. Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 too bad. Uh, for me, I was a little more like lighthearted, and it's evil genius in terms of like I don't see it as extremely evil, but it's really opened my mind to the fact, especially coupled with uh, the whole Trump um, spin. On what we heard about Michael Cohen this last week. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm doing a case on Airbnb and apparently like there's a law where you say, if I don't want to be spammed, I can't be spammed. And you like, uh, you like either check a box or you just have to notify the company in one way or another. And uh, in particular, so this was a Craigslist users back in like 2011 and there's a uh a box you can check that says i don't want to be spammed i don't want any um notifications from solicitors so people would list their stuff to rent on craigslist and airbnb uh they said it was through a sales group that they contracted uh was sending emails to these craigslist list uh craigslist people users and saying, hey, I'm an Airbnb fan. You should get on Airbnb. It really helps me like, make a lot of money. <laughs> uh, and apparently they, they uh, did run into some, some legal trouble, um, but I guess it still hadn't worked its way, at least in, ter- in terms of when the case was published, it hadn't worked its way through the court yet because they said, well, it wasn't really us. It was these salespeople, and we told them not to do that. And the way they set it up, uh, it made it look like it, they were all from Gmail accounts. So it made it look like it was from a third party. It couldn't be traced back to Airbnb. And so it really goes to show this whole case kind of goes to show with Airbnb. Uh, the other thing that they talked about was how in New York um, they're trying to the New York government is trying to crack down on Airbnb and make it so that everybody who does it can be traceable. You know, that it's, it can be taxed. Um, I think a couple of weeks ago they're trying to do a ban at least in certain parts of New York on Airbnb and uh, part of the uh, municipal government is saying because it dries up rentals. And I guess there was some um, data that came out that said that that was the case. Um, and in, the, in this case, I'm reading for the class I'm in, it's talking about how Airbnb itself doesn't see, doesn't just look at the regulation and see it as, okay, we need to follow these laws and comply, but because it's such a new innovation they see themselves as being tried in the court of public opinion. And like part of, it was kind of like what you said about like uh, demographic changing in the United States. Like part of the things that are going on in the cases as they get more and more users and more and more people accepting Airbnb as a form of, you know, um, short-term rentals, um, you know, the less resistance they find in the legal system. And to me, that's kind of the kind of evil genius type thing. I mean, not like in a super malicious way, more in just like a straight on capitalistic way. Um, that's kind of, kind of interesting. It makes you think of where we're at now, you know what I'm saying? Um, in the American and we've probably always been this way, but where we're at now in the digital era of like, there is the actual legal system, but the court of public opinion and the court of like, what people will actually enforce that is really um uh, becoming just as important as the letter of the law, it seems
1: hmm yeah, we're in definitely an uncharted territory with the with this new technocentric society that we have, and there's a lot of uh regulation that needs to be made or there's a lot of things that we need to kind of get a round turn on because it's going to get uh it's going to get pretty confusing.
0: Well, especially, so the other thing that's interesting that came out recently was today, uh, I guess Trump went on Google or came out and said that he thought Google was rigging its news feed to only say negative things about him. That is some next level paranoia. And there are some political commentators who have come out and said that they want to see the government get involved in the tech companies and regulate how they populate their news feeds. They already do. I don't think they do yet.
1: They do on YouTube. Really? Yeah, they deprioritize uh, right-leaning uh, podcasters and YouTubers for sure.
0: But that's the choice of the private company. Yeah, these, yeah, yeah. What these, what these uh, Republican lawmakers want is the government to have oversight on these private enterprises.
1: So over Google as, as well, which is right. the umbrella company.
0: Right. So they want they want the federal government to come in and say you have to have this much good news about people and this yeah. much bad news about people.
1: See, that's one of those things that sounds absurd because we are living in a simulation <laughs> and everything's absurd. We're in the freaking upside down. But there is some some type of accidental validity to that where I mean, what do we do in the case where these tech companies have a political agenda? What do we do if they collude together to take down people who are exercising free speech in a manner that they deem unacceptable? So at what point could that snowball into something more malicious? I mean, if they're already hiding content that they don't want people to see, because there's footage of uh, boardroom meetings where this has happened, where they said, the so-and-so site is an alt-right site. Why is this popping up on my should watch next on YouTube feed? And they're like, she's like, you need to deprioritize this. And and I'm wondering if, well, for one, I didn't know what the site was. So I don't know if it actually is alt-right. What is even alt-right? What is alt-left? How do you distinguish what's what's uh, appropriate content to be putting in your your main news feed? If you're that company.
0: No, nah, I see. I see the I see the searches just like an, another newspaper because that's what newspapers do, right? They get stuff, um, you know, from the wire. They get stuff from like Reuters and, and the Associated Press and they pick and choose which ones they want to put on there. And at the end of the day, if you want information from, from a different source, you go to a different source. You don't have to mm-hmm. use Google. There's a lot of different web crawlers. Google's the most powerful. But I mean... There's still other ways to get at the information. There's a lot of different, you know. Bring Yahoo back. Y'all want to like what right-leaning web crawler? Go to, go buy Yahoo.
1: Yeah, that is why does every Trump supporter have a Yahoo email address?
0: Maybe that's what they're already doing. Who knows? <laughs> that's what I'm saying is I don't, think the, I don't think the federal government should be coming in and telling anybody what they can or cannot uh, publish or or. um bring back from a from a search or put on any kind of database. Mm-hmm. I am that's completely ridiculous. And I don't even see how you can make that argument when you just argued against net neutrality.
1: <laughs> 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 yes, yeah. yeah, seriously. Good point.
0: It makes no sense. You're basically uh, that,
1: that was like 20 Trump catastrophes ago. I totally forgot about net neutrality. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to keep up. So no, no, oh, definitely no. So, um, no, that's a good episode nine. Uh, I feel like I learned a lot from this episode and just a lot me of too. So, in the meantime, we'll have to brainstorm. No, I think we already have a, a episode next week. Next week's episode is going to be about uh, sustainable energy.
1: Oh, my God. People. Yeah, let's never go light. Let's keep going hard.
0: We, we just got to do it. Balls <laughs> to the walls. <clears throat>
1: Pressure makes diamonds.
0: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and but the thing is, great about this episode, it's not just about like sustainable energy, like oh, you know, let's go, like I don't know, make a chair out of seashells or something like that. What this episode is about is, can we have sustainable energy and still have economic growth? And I feel like a lot of people aren't really talking about that, right? And like, yeah. what's actually going on? And I got a guy who he's got his master's in public policy. He's lived a couple of different places in the U.S. and has, for the last three, three years or so of his career, been working in this area. So he has these conversations all the time. So I'm, I'm excited, man. Yeah.
1: And that'll be, we're out of the, uh, the single digits now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, That's man. It's a milestone. It is a milestone. It's almost like the years of a child, and I definitely feel about 10 years old right
1: now. Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) It's about time to go to Disney World.
1: Yeah, it's about time for a nap.
0: (laughs) All right, man. Well, you have a good night, and uh, talk to you soon.
1: Yeah, take care.